It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tomorrow, the government will deliver a 4.7 million euro budget. 500 million euro will be available for new spending. 1,000 million euro is a lot of money, but demand for extra funding is so great that in reality, there may be little to go around. On Friday's programme, we heard the concerns of local TDs calling on the government to put its money where its mouth is and fund frontline services, addiction services in in the northeast, the Red Door Project and Fasten, the Family Addiction Support Network, a voluntary service which has been so short of funding it's facing closure. We'll be watching what will be done to tackle the drug scourge locally by funding these services and ways of implementing the recommendations in the Giran report. I am very wary when I see situations like the Family Addiction Support Network in Dundalk that deals with Loudmead, Cavan and Monaghan offering real solutions that is used many times by Angarda Siakana but is having real difficulties in drawing down funding to stay alive. That's uh, Rory O'Murku, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Meath, speaking in uh, the Dáil last week. Jackie McKenna is uh, the Project Manager manager for the Family Addiction Support Network and on the line. Good morning to you, Jackie, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, Rory O'Murku was telling us on Friday that you've received some funding. Uh, where are you at today? Because you were facing uh, this abysmal crisis of having to close the door because there wasn't the money available to keep them open. Hiya, Michael, and thanks a million. Uh, uh, I think there's a big misconception out there about us receiving funding. Uh, we have received absolutely no funding whatsoever. Uh, very little communication since last April between the HSE and ourselves, and um, it took a letter from Auxiliary Bishop Michael uh, Reuter to ask for a meeting with uh, Minister Feehan and the HSE on the 23rd of the 9th, which we did do. And uh, while it was a positive meeting, we were under... We, I suppose there was a, a misconception out there that we were um, getting 70,000 uh, from uh, the Department of Health that was um, the 2021 budget yeah. for this year. Well, that was the Minister's misconception, wasn't it? Well, it's our misconception because in actual fact at that meeting um, uh, it's not ring-fenced for Fossen. It's open to uh, six groups throughout the two counties um, 
So there is no criteria, no timeline set. Well, no, I have to take that back. There was a timeline timeline set for the end of September to have the criteria out to mm. make the applications. Um, we're now into the second week in October. Uh, there is no timeline um, uh, sent out. Right. I have uh, contacted the HSE and they have said that they're working on it. Right. And it will so, be so, so the next week or two. So... so uh the, the minister was a bit mixed up when he spoke in the Dáil that time. Uh, I remember we had yourself and Bishop Bruter on yes. uh, in advance of that meeting yes. and we heard Frankie Fien, uh, the minister who has responsibility for the implementation of uh, the drug strategy, say that that money was there for you. Uh, but that isn't the case. That's not the case. No, that 70000 is a different issue altogether. That 70000 was a budget 2021 from the Department of Health that was sent out, it was circulated in October last year, it's supposed to be for 2021, um, and I believe it can't be paid retrospectively. We've asked that it will be, because by the time applications for that 70,000 comes out, for the six different groups throughout the region, throughout mm-hmm. um, Loud and Mead, it will be the end of the year. So that money has to be spent by the end of the year. Right. That is not core funding which we need so we mm. are going to have that's to a one-off payment in other words yeah. it doesn't mean that you'll get 70,000 between no. the six of you next yeah. year either well if six groups across two counties apply for it that's about 11,000 each that's available to yeah. six groups so and also we were told that there was 80,000 uh, to be drawn down but that 80,000 is for the regional drugs task mm. force not for Fossen. So that extra 80,000 is for the Regional Drugs Task Force across four counties. Right. So uh, we don't have the um, luxury of time on our side. Uh, We're running out of time. And the Board of Management decided in July to take um, destiny into our own hands and appeal to the community to help us mm. keep the doors open until such time that the government can sort out the red tape and the bureaucracy right. the community groups have to... You've been fundraising uh, with yeah. the begging bowl, as I put yeah. it the last and time. The begging yeah. bowl. Mm. And yeah. just let me tell you yeah. how good the community has been oh, and nice. are. Mm. Um, um, we have got together with Angarda Siakana and uh, supported by Athletics Ireland and the North East uh, Runners and the Office of Pub- Public Works to um, uh, organise an event on Sunday the 17th of October, a fashion 5K uh, family fun run. Um, and parents or participants can register online for the event or visit fashion.ie, the website, or Facebook, which is at fashion support or go to myrun.com to register. So we're asking uh, families, uh, businesses, people, runners, everyone across the county to come out in support of that, just even to make it a family fun day. Um, uh, The event has been organised, as I said, with families in mind. There will be spot prizes on the day and uh, both individuals and groups come along. Sponsorship cards are also available from our office. If you want uh, to get a sponsorship card and fill it in, uh, you can reach us here at the office, mm. number 042 
Um, businesses across the northeast have been absolutely magnificent. You're getting support, Jackie, are you? Sorry? You're getting support, are you? We are getting fabulous support. Mm. Businesses who has gone through COVID, I can't believe how good and how supportive mm. they have been to us. I'm not terribly surprised, really, because generally people are good. But I think everybody or most people would be aware of your service. And I think an awful lot of people really appreciate and value the service that you provide and don't want it to close. I mean, uh, we've had uh, a Catholic bishop advocating on behalf of you. We've heard great things said about your services from the Red Door Project, from Angarda Siakana, from politicians across the board. And it's a vital service, as people who've used your service will tell us as well. Uh, so no great surprise in that uh, no. but uh, you're plugging hard which is on top of the work that you normally do as I said at the outset this is a voluntary service as well and uh, this but sort of thing takes a, a lot of effort and time Yeah a lot of effort and time and mm. only for the community we would not be open families would not have this service yeah. and come 2022 if we don't get co-funding for this project we are facing the same situation again mm. next year. Well, so I was actually speaking to Andy Ogle on Friday, which is the uh, Regional Drugs Task Force Coordinator, who had told me that he had a meeting with the Minister the day before and the Department of Health, mm. and that he is not holding out... Um, uh, he's Hope. not holding out for good things to happen in 2022 because... Really? He said it's very unlikely that there will be additional funding. He has been told. But we were promised that there will be additional funding for projects in 2022. All right, let's rewind uh, because you're saying, from what you're hearing, you're not expecting funding, money. putting money uh, uh, to match the words because we've heard fine words uh, because there's been an awful lot of problems we don't need to tell people what the problems have been as a, a result of uh, the drugs problem in this region uh, apart from the drugs and the impact that has on people's lives uh, there's the assaults and the killings and the guns and all of that stuff uh, and it came to a head 22 months ago uh, when uh, Mr. Guerin was asked to look into this 22 months ago. Uh, and it's now three months on, isn't it, since uh, the report for implementing uh, the Guerin report, uh, which was uh, carried out in January uh, of uh, this year, uh, was published. Uh, and here we are, but uh, 22 months on since the killing of Keane Mulready Woods, here we are, and no funding available, despite everybody saying we have, we'll put an end to it, we'll, 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 take, we'll do whatever it takes, we'll put whatever resources necessary into it, we'll come up with the money, yeah. uh, and here you are, and you're saying it, it's just not happening. No, uh, it's not, and it's still not happening. If you look at our national drug strategy, great on paper, absolutely wonderful, and it's the first time that families have been actioned within the national drug strategy. But the money hasn't come down through to implement that for projects Mm. on the ground. That's the problem. And if the government is serious about delivering on the national drug strategy, well, then the need to start investing in communities right across Ireland. Drugs are not going to go away. We are all all raising children and why is now the normal drug culture. Mm. We all need knowledge and awareness. Well, it's clear from what you said earlier on, the Minister doesn't know what he's doing or what is being done on his behalf or on the behalf of the government because he thought you were getting a whole pile of money and you're getting nothing in actual fact. There is a a pot there that you and others can apply for. 
Yeah, back on mm. the 16th or the mm. 15th of July this year, the minister had said that we we were granted 152,000 and that we had only drawn down 10,000. Now, that was um, a, a mistake on the minister's side because um, it was obviously the National Family Support Network that he was talking about, mm. which is now defunct, which has closed up suddenly uh, in April 2021. And actually, I was just thinking last night about that very point. If that 152,000 was ring-fenced for the budget 2021 for the National Family Support Network, surely that money is available for uh, distribution to other groups like Fawson, who is struggling to stay alive and who can, who has all of the actions aligned to the actions in the National Drug Strategy, who has proved themselves in delivering services and who uh, the community, the state mm. and the church really believes is necessary. So why can that n- money not be uh, wing-fenced to help fasten out? Okay. We'll come back to you in uh, the coming days or, or weeks uh, as money is channeled uh, through the Department of uh, Justice uh, following on from uh, the budget allocations tomorrow, Jackie. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Jackie McKenna, who's Project Manager with the Family Addiction Support Network, FASN. Michael Reed on LMFM. The International Protection Accommodation Service and the Minister for Justice are being asked by Meath County Council to make Wi-Fi uh, freely available to people who are resident in Mosney. It follows a motion that was put forward by two county councillors, Fianna Fáil's Mike Bray and Ronan Murr of the Social Democrats, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, I take it there's no Wi-Fi in in Mosney, is there? There is, Michael. Actually, there oh. is. Um, there is no. There is a, a level of Wi-Fi, but the problem at the moment is that the Wi-Fi is only um, accessible in very specific parts of the uh, the whole complex and internally at that. So um, I guess maybe the background to this, myself and as you said, Councillor Mike Bray, Fianna Fáil Councillor Kells, we both sit on the steering committee of the Corner and Oak, which for your listeners at home is effectively the local council for young people. And at these quarterly meetings, we'd hear about what young people are working on and some of the issues affecting young people. And it's during the conversation around um, this last meeting in October, or last meeting last time, we heard about the challenges that some young people are facing, particularly in Mosley Village, um, regarding accessing Wi-Fi. Mm. And as, as I said, the challenge, and I guess specifically, is that there is um, lots of lots of very strong, wonderful organisations doing a lot of great work in Mosley Village to help these people who are going through the asylum process. And um, one of which is, for instance, Loud Children and Young People Services Committee and Mead, um, this Mead Sipsy. So these two Sipsy organisations, and they've provided portable devices and um, tablets for young people to be able to access vital supports and services as well as educational. Right. As you as you can imagine, during mm. the the COVID, there's a number of children there who are going and attending school, and um, but. Uh, and a lot of that school now has gone online. But while they can access internet in certain parts in the community rooms, for instance, in Mosley Centre, they can't access outside of that in their own homes, in their own bedrooms and so on. So, as you can imagine, lots of parents out there, the children would have been working and, and will work at home, doing their homework. But uh, for these children, because there isn't any Wi-Fi, they're not able to do so. Mm. And we are talking about a much more vulnerable cohort who don't have the, the financial means to be able to... Uh, 
to have uh, internet, to have unlimited mm. internet, like there are people who are coming from disaster zones, coming from places that are involved in armed conflict. Yeah. Um, so it's it would be unfortunately quite terrible that these devices which they have been given, which is amazing mm. that they've been able to get, get these, but at the same time, they can't utilise them to the best effects. And who prov- who's providing the limited Wi-Fi? Um, so, I, in terms of the actual service provider, I'm not sure which of the right. communicate was. But in terms of the, mm. the group, the responsible parties, what you would be looking at is the International Protection Accommodation Service, mm. ICAS, as you've already mentioned, yeah. and the Minister for Justice. So, Wi-Fi and broadband go- broadband goes up to Mosny um, and comes into the centre itself. But what we would be calling for is free Wi-Fi from around the complex so that people living in the homes around there could be able to access. And you can see that where in some of our larger urban areas, this has started to be rolled out. Mm. In Napa, for instance, where you have free Wi-Fi available within these uh, the urban centres of these areas. And that's the same kind of call that we're, we're looking for. Yeah. Uh, why isn't there Wi-Fi readily available for people who are in Mosny? I, I, I would like to think that it's just a, somewhat of an oversight. Yeah. As I said, like, mm. if you are... Well, then access- I suppose that's what I'm wondering. Uh, or is it uh, the cost of it? Uh, because uh, it's run by a private company, isn't it? Well, while it would be run by a private company, the funding that's available does come from the department. So, as I said, the Minister mm. of Justice and the International Protection Accommodation Service, which are both a state body. So, I would, as I said, I think there might be an element of oversight here. I think it's one of these things as well that maybe has only worsened in covid so obviously, during the COVID restrictions, even access to the the rooms within the uh, the Mosley Centre, mm. the community room being an example there, would have lessened because obviously restrictions around from COVID perspective. So, like I guess the rest of the population who are working more from home, uh, children who are doing homework as well in home, it's not something that had previously been probably had come to, had come to the fore strongly. But I think what's brought us maybe most to ourselves' attention is the fact that. You, are, you do have agencies that are funded by the state, um, as it says, loud, mm. you, mm. the SIPSIs there, um, they're providing these, these uh, tablets, they're providing these devices. Yeah, but, and it's fantastic, a credit to everybody who's been working on that, no doubt, uh, and great that uh, there is support uh, for people because they are so vulnerable uh, and uh, indeed uh, their income so limited and uh, their opportunities as limited as they are whilst they're in Mosny, uh, but all the more so if uh, they're denied what is now uh, fundamental in everybody's life at this stage, which is access to the internet. Yeah, I know that in the past we would have maybe considered the internet to be a, a luxury, but it's no longer a luxury. I mean, it is a vital part of daily life. Mm. In fact, the, if you look at the, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, I know in Mead we're doing a lot of work around the Sustainable Development Goals. The ninth one of those talks about increasing the access to ICT and striving to provide uh, affordable and universal access to internet. And as you mentioned, like, again, like, this is a vulnerable core to people, and obviously it would benefit and where we brought, came, this is coming from is the young people. But I was only reading the, at the weekend an article in one of the Sunday papers about, I think it was uh, Gazel and Ali Ali Maher, um, children Abbott at six and Ryan two, who recently fled um, Afghanistan. Gazel owned a dental practice over there. Hmm. So I don't know any more of the personal circumstances of this particular family other than what I've read in the paper. But those families are reflected, other families there, and having access to Wi-Fi within their own homes that they can keep in contact with their loved ones, yep. keep in contact with friends that they have had to have left behind. Um, oftentimes in very different time zones as well as the support and services as well as the education that they need to be able to access to help them 
integrated mm. Irish society. And everything and else that goes with it. I mean, if they want to watch YouTube or if uh, they want to go on social media and make new friends or whatever it is that they want to do on the internet, the same as everybody else, uh, they uh, should be able to uh, avail of that in a first world country such as Ireland, uh, where they're seeking asylum. I th- absolutely. And I think like there's so many wonderful organisations. If you look at the, the Friends of Mosley Village, you will see so many groups that are basically providing services, providing supports, all of which they're not able to fully access because of this. But I'd like to think as well, I guess that's one of the wonderful things within Ireland in terms of how people are so quick to extend the, the hand of friendship and as well to provide that support. I'd like to think that maybe while it is IPAS and is the Minister for Justice that are ultimately mm. responsible in terms of funding, I'd like to think that maybe there might be some telecommunications companies out there that might see this as an opportunity to really say, well, look, maybe they might have help public cost because obviously there is a, an element of instruction that would need to be put in there that will cost that you'd like to think that they'd see this as a good news story to help provide um, a really vital service to people who are going through a very difficult time hmm. at, this, at this moment. But in real terms, uh, we're not talking about a very substantial cost, are we? I wouldn't, I wouldn't think so at all. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that you see with IT and the internet is that year on year the costs are decreasing um, as, 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 as it becomes more um, readily available. So I wouldn't think so. Like, and that's why we see in a lot of the towns that it's starting to get rolled out because it is become more, um, uh, it's becoming cheaper. Mm. Unfortunately, though, for these families that have very limited um, access to funds to begin with because of circumstances, it's not cheap enough for them to be able to access on their own. Mm. Hence why we're caught myself and Councillor Mike Bray are calling for the Department of Justice and IPAS and any communication company out there to step in and to, and to just, um, I guess, join these last two dots. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, when it comes uh, to young people in particular, it would be a very important part of integration uh, because uh, a lot of these uh, children will be mixing with children from outside of Mosny. Uh, they'll be friends with them. Uh, but they're on a different level to them uh, because uh, their lives are different uh, because they don't have access to the internet and it's as simple as that. Yeah, indeed. And I think like, when you look at some of the children who have arrived in, I mean, on the one hand, there are those who are attending school, uh, which is fantastic and straight to the LBTV and so on are providing this, this support. But when they leave school, you want to, like, like any child, they want to be able to keep in contact with the friends that they have made. Mm. Um, and as well as that, there are obviously issues where um, maybe some of them have gone through very traumatic circumstances so being able to access those vital support and services around mental health as well I think is really really important and I think it can't just only be in the in the few rooms where it is available that have to be staffed and obviously during certain hours we do want to be able to provide this whenever um, people want as you say it is a vital service at this stage Okay, um, and that's really well, the Minister for Justice, uh, I think it probably goes without saying, uh, is mm-hmm. on maternity leave, uh, but also a native of uh, the county. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that we'll ask Helen McEntee when uh, the Minister returns uh, to her desk uh, about uh, this proposal uh, in uh, the coming weeks. We leave it there for the moment, though, Ronan, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Thanks, Ronan Moore, Social Democrats Councillor on Meath County Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, sexual health education or probably more to the point misinformation. Plan International Ireland's Youth Advisory Panel has been researching the extent of sexual and reproductive health misinformation in this country. It spoke to about 500 young people aged between 15 and 24. The research is called No 
where to go. And it's being launched today as part of International Day of the Girl. We're joined by Mairead Butler, who's a member of uh, that advisory pl- panel for uh, you for Plan International. And uh, a very good morning to you, Mairead, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, maybe we'll talk about your research I- in a moment, uh, but as I say, it's been launched today, International Day of uh, the Girl. How will you be marking International Day of the Girl? Um, so as part of International Day of the Girl, I'll be doing a takeover with the Taoiseach, Michal Martin. So I'll be going to Leicester House at two o'clock and I'll be having a meeting. And the idea is that we can discuss the issues facing girls and women in Ireland and abroad and also in particular the research that we've been doing. Right. How did this come about? It seems an amazing opportunity for a young woman like yourself. You're 19 years of age, I think. Yes, I'm 19. It's fantastic. So the takeovers are part of Plan International's campaigns for International Day of the Girls. So they're happening in countries all over the world. Um, so we're doing it, obviously, in Ireland today, visiting the Taoiseach. So um, as I'm part of the Youth Advisory Panel. Um, I put myself forward for spokesperson. And surprisingly, I got uh, offered this an amazing opportunity so I'm delighted mm-hmm. to be able to do it today. Well congratulations to you. I'm sure it'll be a very interesting day for you and it may be a very interesting day for the Taoiseach. I gather you'll be telling Michal Martin about your research. Yes definitely. I think it's um, a really important topic to talk about You know, especially as there is um, currently reform going on with the curriculum. We want to make sure it's done in a way that best suits all students and suit their needs. You know, we're pushing really to have a centralised resource that all students get to with non-biased, just objective information and also to have peer-led learning. So what the students are learning is what they need to know. Okay, and uh, young people are looking for this kind of, of information, but they're not looking for it in school, it would seem. Yes, it was really surprising when we did um, the survey and uh, ended up with our statistics that less than 1% of the students we um surveyed would actually go to their school. And I think that's a really um, shocking statistic because surely school should be the place where you go to get objective information, for reliable information, and instead these students are turning to online sites where there can be a lot of misinformation or social media. So we really just want to make sure that everyone has access to the same uh, level of information that's also correct for their age group. Okay, so what kind of inf- misinformation are they getting on the internet? Um, certainly just things about particularly uh, women's health. We've noticed that a lot of um, young girls don't understand basic things about how their body works, you know, puberty, periods, all things like that. You know, they're just normal parts of life for girls and young women. And I think it's really important that everyone is armed with that information so they can make um, choices about their body and about their life. OK, is there misinformation about how to get pregnant? Uh, I'm sure, that, I think there is. I certainly, um, especially with the... Uh, birth control there's all sorts of rumours and urban myths I mean they're they've always been around but I think with the advent of social media and the kind of proliferation of them online I think it's easier to access and sometimes it can be harder to find accurate information if you don't know where to look All right. Uh, is there anything peculiar about being a young girl in this country that is different to being a young boy in this country do you think I think um, in general I think there's a sort of societal standard for girls and for boys. And I think it's always dangerous when we um, stereotype and put people into boxes, you know, and there's a sort of idea of what a girl is supposed to do. You know, you're not supposed to step up and be a leader. You know, you're supposed to kind of step back and be a caregiver or, and they're all important. But I think whenever you put someone into a box, 
you know, and I think um, certainly with access to information such as sexual um, misinformation and health, and also um, previously we did research about free to be online, and many girls, young women in Ireland, don't feel safe to be online. You know, they're facing harassment, they're facing abuse, and um, I don't think it's to the same level um, as to boys. Obviously, there are also problems facing boys and young men in this country, but they're also ones facing girls. Okay, Michal Martin is a, a man, of course, uh, and he's not any different to his predecessors. All Tishi in this country have been men. That's something that you'd like to see change. Yeah, definitely. I think, like, if we want to say that we have a representative democracy, we need to have a parliament and a government that is representative of the people. You know, we need to see more TDs and more members of the Shannad who are who are of all genders, all races, all ethnicities, all religions. Because, you know, I think it's important, um, and I know this is kind of the point of what I'm doing today, is the young girls and young women around Ireland can look and say, I can do that. That's someone like me. And she's in a position of power today. And it's not a far off dream, and it is possible. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and uh, would you be more comfortable presenting your research to a, a woman, a, a female Taoiseach, uh, than Michal Martin? Of course, I'd love if there was a woman Taoiseach right now, but I'm perfectly comfortable presenting this research. And I think um, it's important that when we want to bring about gender equality, that we include people of all genders. It's not just an issue for women and girls. It's an issue for men as well, because men are also um, being affected by this societal standard that we create for gender. Okay, Uh, and you'll be telling the Taoiseach, as you said, 1% uh, of young people in this country would uh, be seeking information on sexual health in school. 85% have looked online. Four and five say uh, that they or someone they knew has suffered negative effects because of information uh, that was incorrectly given to them. Uh, So what will you be saying in terms of what should be done about this? Because I think you have a number of recommendations that you're going to make to the Taoiseach. Well, certainly I think we understand that there is reform going on. We want to see it go in the right way. So what we were looking for is peer-led learning. So the idea would be that students can um, have the freedom and the opportunity to talk about what they need to know and talk about what they want to know. And also we want a centralised resource which is age appropriate and has reliable information that all students can access so that if they're even outside the classroom, if they still have questions, they can go to that and they know that if I get information from this source that it is reliable and that um, I can trust it. Okay, well, it'll be a big day for you, I'm sure. Probably a bigger day for me, Hall Martin, having said that. Uh, But I I hope you enjoy it. uh, And uh, I'm sure we'll be uh, seeing you later in the day in news bulletins and so on. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us uh, this morning, Mairead. Thank you. Thank you indeed. Mairead Butler, who's a member of Plan International's Youth Advisory Panel. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments that have been coming to us uh, today. And thanks, as always, to anybody and everybody who has been in touch with us so far. We would Deirdre and Kells in touch with us uh, about uh, the weather and indeed the rising price of energy. Very warm weather at the moment, almost uh, freaky weather. It's uh, been so mild for the time of the year, but the winter is coming, as uh, Deirdre says, and if they end up closing the emergency 
emergency department our ladies hospital in Navan uh, it'll lead uh, to more incidences of uh, the virus uh, it's still out there and uh, people are going up to the hospitals uh, thanks uh, Deirdre for that uh, we'll be talking about that uh, later on with nurses from Blanchardstown uh, John and Drogheda about climate change saying every time he puts the news on these days it's all about climate change he said you'd think that the average Joe Soap is responsible for everything that's happening in relation to the climate we light a fire or we run a diesel car John has done a little bit of reading up on this and he says it annoys him that the media organisations fail to mention the deforestation of the Amazon which he says has more to do with climate change than us lighting a fire he said he couldn't believe when he read that the US military per year produces more carbon emissions than as many as 145 countries put together. Yet the ordinary person here in Ireland is being levied with carbon taxes, left, right and centre. There's only so far you can stretch your income. 40 years ago, one individual could keep a household going. Not anymore, says John. Thank you, John. I think we're going to hear a lot more about carbon taxes over the course of the couple of uh, days uh, because uh, the budget is uh, tomorrow of course and there's going to be carbon taxes on everything you're going to be paying more for diesel and coal and briquettes and home heating oil and all the rest of it put together uh, that will uh, mean uh, increases in prices in in the shops and uh, there's uh, a bit of inflation ahead of us uh, and as a result of that more people will be looking for more money and I think we're going to have a, a very interesting week ahead of us this week. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you know, Airgrid is uh, planning on constructing uh, the north-south interconnector by using overground pylons. Uh, but the project uh, we've been told is on hold because of a government review into all of this uh, which uh, I suppose you could argue means uh, that there's no need uh, to be looking at getting these pylons, not as yet anyway. No, there's no pylons in the country. Um, We have procured the design of the pylons. That work is ongoing. We're awaiting a decision from the judicial process in Northern Ireland, which a bit disappointed. We haven't got it yet. We thought it would be in September, but we hope it's imminent. Um, and you asked about engagement. We are engagement, engaging with the relevant local authorities in both jurisdictions and with landowners. I am not going to speak in detail about landowner engagement in fairness to those landowners who are engaging in a very constructive way with us. Um, but there is a lot of engagement going on and I'm confident that will be a positive outcome. Now, you did hear this last week. This is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Airgrid, Mark Foley. He was speaking in front of an Oireachtas committee. Uh, And he seems to be suggesting that the only thing delaying the implementation of uh, this project is uh, the judicial process in Northern Ireland. And that when uh, it's out of the courts there, uh, it'll be full steam ahead. Uh, And that's why they've gone to design with the pylons and so on. Uh, There may be an issue with landowners that we'll hear in a moment, uh, but it, it does seem from what Mark Foley told the Oireachtas that there's no problem as far as Airgrid is concerned with this review into the project that the government has commissioned. In fact, it seems by all accounts that it's full steam ahead. Uh, just very briefly at the, at the question, I think, uh, related to North South Interconnection, just to say, you know, we are anticipating a positive outcome in Northern Ireland and it would be um, wrong of me not to say that. Um, and and 
elements of procurement are underway, engagements underway. The project is in execution mode, and and I, I need to be you know very frank about that. And it will ramp up very considerably as soon as we get a positive outcome from the judicial process in Northern Ireland. All right, that's Mark Foley, Porrig O'Reilly, spokesperson with uh, the Northeast Pile and Pressure Campaign. Good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, the project is in execution mode. Yeah, many times have we heard this, uh, Michael. You know. Um, it's very disappointing when you listen to the comments that were made, in my view, that, that nothing seems to have been learned here at all from the latest CEO of Airgrid. Um, there's a lot of strident comments about going ahead and execution mode, etc., um, and engagement with landowners. But there's been absolutely no engagement with the vast majority of landowners. And it's almost five years now since the planning was approved. They still have no idea what is going on. They've had no update on what access routes will be used. Um, we've never even seen the pylon design, although it's people's right to see that. And yet the CEO is stating that the project is, is going ahead and there's good engagement. So for us, it's more of the same. We're, we're very disappointed that um, when we look at the Kildare Mead line and, and the Grid West one, that there are a lot of claims being made that the culture was changing in Airgrid in relation to um, listening to people and working together with landowners. But for whatever reason on the north-south interconnector, there's this view that uh, they are going to bully their way forward and go ahead. And even, you know, ignoring the current review that's supposed to be underway by the government, uh, it's like it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter what the outcome is, they're going to go ahead. Mm. Well, can they? No, they can't, Michael. And this, and this, in my view, makes some very misleading statements from last week. So to give just a few reasons for that, there are nine planning conditions that have to be complied with. Mm. Very strict planning conditions. And we've said this many times. It's five years later, and not one of those has been um, um, examined or uh, submitted in relation to how that compliance will will be carried out to the local authorities who are responsible for the enforcement of these conditions. So none of that has happened, and yet they're talking about being in execution mode. The landowner engagement, um, we have uh, forms of authority uh, signed with over 95% of landowners along the whole route, which Airgrid's legal department have respected and said that they will comply with. So in other words, they cannot talk to 95% of the landowners without contacting either NEPP or, or the Mononati Pilot Group or mm-hmm. State in the North. Uh, that has never happened. So any engagement that they're talking about is maybe on 10, 15, 20 pylons out of 400. And yet they're blowing this up as, as positive engagement happening across the route. And this is just a divide and conquer, uh, you know, misleading type of approach that is going to serve nobody any good. And is that why Mark Foley didn't want to talk in any great detail about that engagement, do you exactly, think? Exactly, Michael. There's no numbers to it. There's no percentages, you know. Uh, I don't want, you know, he said, I don't want to, you know, jeopardise or whatever the phrase he used, the, the uh, landowners that they're talking to. But there's no numbers there. So it's the old classic approach from the ESB and Airgrid of divide and conquer. They will look for, they're working on three things. They will seek concessions from the local authorities on the conditions. They will intimidate landowners with threatened way leave access, which they do not have the legal right to do, which we will stand up to. And then they will put in a heap of compensation of public taxpayers' money to try and buy some landowners over. None of those three things have worked so far. The key one for us now is that the local authority planning executives 
Uh, we are we have looked for some freedom of information. If Mark Foley said he's engaging with the local authorities, we put in some freedom of information and we'll find out exactly what has gone in. Our view it will be ESB rather than Airgrid because Airgrid are just leaving everything to ESB, which is incorrect. And we will be pushing on the local authorities to make sure that none of these conditions uh, are, are conceded in any shape or form. And if that is respected, which it should be, then Airgrid are going nowhere fast. Mm. Well, they have to get on to people's land, don't they, if uh, they're going to construct these pylons. Uh, there isn't uh, enough public road to do it. Exactly, Michael. And, and the, 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 the issue they have now is he talks about the pylon design being... Uh, being completed and by the way they, they started that procurement process before they even went for planning just so people remember uh, how arrogant a, a, a situation that was they had the design but they cannot physically build the pylons in, in, in our view until they know the specific land conditions you know how, uh, what, what type of soil it is how, how deep do the, uh, the feet of the pylon need to be in the concrete basis all of these things, by the way, should have been part of the environmental impact statement that went into the planning application. But they were given a very soft run there in terms of accepting theoretical situations on land. But they now need to get on the land to to know what actual pylon sizes to build. Um, so their next step has to be to try and seek land access. And by putting out very... Um, aggressive statements like this and, and not even mm. informing landowners of what they're planning is just leading it to very much into a direct conflict mode and, and uh, this is going to get very serious if, if they move forward in this manner. Well, uh, left opposition politicians are at least agog. Uh, are they being sincere in expressing the concerns that they have about what's being said that this can be interpreted to mean that Airgrid expects no obstacle in its way? I don't know how any, uh, you know, normal uh, analysis of this could leave any room for doubt on Airgrid's mind in relation to the opposition and the request for undergrounding over the years, which has been very consistent. So by not submitting the appropriate planning application, including access routes, uh, they have to have had some assumption that they're going to have to talk to landowners and, and get their approval, and they're not getting that. So the only conclusion come to is that they're going to try and force their way through government support and and uh, the, the current government is not making any statements uh, at TD level as to as to what's happening here. That's unusual, isn't it? Yeah, it, to me it looks like they've all agreed in the background. Ergo are using the trick that, uh, you know, these shortages that, that we have been in the media for the last few weeks, these claims, are, they're, they're rolling this into the north south and connector being critical now which is very misleading because it's got nothing to do with the, the, the risk of, of these shortages coming up. But maybe it's forcing the politicians at government level too to try and get on board. Hmm. Uh, what do you think of uh, this review? Uh, I don't think you were very confident uh, that it uh, would be a comprehensive review of what's being proposed in the first place. Michael, I think... You know, on, on the on the bigger picture here, it's, there's an absolute disgrace uh, going on in terms of just basic democracy. I mean, we, we have written to the department who is carrying out the review on a number of occasions, just looking for basic inputs as to what's happening, when it's happening, who's being appointed as the uh, as the review the reviewers. We haven't even got the courtesy of a response. And we're representing 95% of the people who are going to get lumbered with this project, in, in, in theory. And there isn't even a response from them. So 
So they've all battened down uh, the, the hatches and they're working together. And you hear, you see, Ergo, they're talking to IBEC, they're talking to all the, the you know, the, the, the commercial uh, companies, uh, they're talking to the Wind Association of Ireland, SEAI, but nobody's talking to the actual people who are affected and the local communities. And that is, is just undemocratic. And all we've ever asked for is just charity and what is going on. So the review, as we said at the start, we, we didn't have much faith in it because mm. it was a review of a review. But Airgrid have proven our point in spades. They're ignoring it totally and they're going ahead. Mm. Uh, we've been asking government ministers uh, or uh, junior ministers at least in uh, the county to speak to us over the course of uh, the last week, Thomas Byrne and uh, Damien English about this and indeed about the hospital issue which is completely separate to this but there's a lot of concern about that uh, in their constituencies Uh, and uh, the ministers hadn't been available to us uh, last week Uh, I think uh, they may be available to us uh, this week would you be concerned that this might be a good week to bury bad news? I would, Michael. Yeah, it's usually it's usually a ploy that Jews, you know, in or around the budget. Um, but uh, and and just on that point, in, in relation to to Thomas Bourne, one of the the, the key uh, interviews recently with him was in relation to the fact that he said all of this would come clear in the national development plan when it would have been published, and there would be a review of the North South interconnector uh, during the uh, the process of coming up with the national development plan. And lo and behold, that has been produced and not a word about the North-South Interconnector going underground there. So the key commitment by Thomas and Fianna Fáil about uh, undergrounding North-South Interconnector through an upgraded National Development Plan uh, was a lot of hot air. And and as we said at the time, uh, there was no way they they were going to to go ahead with it in the National Development Plan. So just to put that point on, on record... But yeah, I mean, I don't know what news there is to be buried anymore, uh, Michael, because um, you know, the government local TDs uh, have never said a word for the last two or three years in support of the project. They've pretended they're supporting it, but we've never got a word from them. Um, and even at this Joint Rocks Committee hearing last week, they were, they, were, they, were, they were never there to be seen. The only uh, party that's chasing it genuinely at the moment is, is Sinn Féin in relation to Darren O'Rourke and Matt Carter. Who are, who are continuing to ask questions. Everybody else has gone to ground. Okay, well, our door is open uh, and uh, perhaps we'll hear from uh, the ministers uh, this week or in the coming weeks. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you, as always, uh, for joining us today. Parag O'Reilly, spokesperson with NEPPC, the Northeast Pylon Pressure Campaign. Now, let's take a, a look at uh, tomorrow's budget uh, and, indeed, uh, the parameters uh, for the budget have changed, much to the pleasant surprise of government uh, because uh, of an increase in corporation to tax. There's been an unexpected windfall, if you like, of €7 billion. Uh, And this means that instead of there being a deficit at the end of this year of €20 billion, the deficit is going to be €13 billion. Now, that might give some options to the government, but really it means we borrowed €7 billion less than was expected instead of it giving us an extra €7 billion to spend. The €7 billion, as I mentioned, came from unexpected corporation tax, seven mil- billion more than expected. Uh, it's a lot of money uh, and that takes us to the budget tomorrow and that will be announced in the context of the OECD Global Agreement on Corporation Tax. There's two pillars to that. 
the government says that under Pillar 1, which will see taxes spread across companies, uh, that it'll lose €2 billion Euro on an annual basis. But under Pillar 2, uh, we'll see our basic rate increase from 12.5%. That'll go up to 15%. You've been hearing a lot about that, uh, I'm sure. But going from 12.5% to 15% means more tax, doesn't it? Or, or does it when you take into consideration what's happening under Pillar 1. Now, this was debated in the Dáil last week, and Rebecca Daly is an intern journalist with LMFM, and she has this special report for us. As you know, the government has signed up to the global OECD deal that will see corporation tax here rise from 12.5% to 15%. Back in June, I told the Financial Times that Ireland could live with a small increase in our corporation tax rate. Now, you accused me then of walking into a trap with those comments. You then went on to accuse me and the Labour Party of damaging the national interest. Now, it was clear then that the writing was on the wall when nearly every country in the world was signing up to this process. Four months on, it now seems the government is going to follow my advice and the advice of the Labour Party and sign up to the 15% rate. Will you accept, Tónista, you were wrong in June? And will you have the good sense and indeed the good grace to withdraw your patronising charge? Tonish, it's good leadership to be able to admit when you're wrong and to publicly acknowledge the fact when you are. That's Labour's Jed Nash. The Loud TD was asking Tonish to leave Radker in the doll to admit to the error of his previous ways. Thanks, Deputy. Um, um, I understand you're a former trade union negotiator and you understand negotiations as I do too. Um, And it is deeply unhelpful uh, when somebody on your side and we were Team Ireland on an issue like this, um, makes concessions uh, on your behalf. Um, it's exactly the same thing if you're a shop, shop steward or a trade union official going in to, make a negoci- in to negotiate with the employers and somebody from your team starts making concessions before you do. It's deeply, unhel- it's deeply unhelpful and it was damaging uh, and that is my assessment of the situation. I stand over it. Um, that is if you see yourself as being part of Team Ireland. Nash then questioned the government sums. The corporation tax is expected to come in at €12 billion Euros this year. And a simple straight line increase to 15%, uh, to bring it up to 15%, would potentially bring in an extra 2.5 billion euros. This would clearly cancel out any losses under Pillar 1. Government say the OECD deal will mean 2 billion less in taxes. Nash agrees that the government will raise 2 billion less under Pillar 1, which will redistribute taxes to other countries. But he says Pillar 2, which raises the rate from 125 to 15%, will raise an extra 2.5 billion. So down 2 billion on one hand, but up 2.5 billion on the other hand, leaving Ireland up by half a billion euro. But that's not how Leo Varadkar understands it. Our existing projections are that um, any change of this nature uh, will reduce our revenue by about two billion a year. Um, but that is only an estimate. Um, nobody can know that for sure. It's based on certain assumptions which may or may not be correct and they may well be updated. The Taunashta told Nash that up to now supporting the 12.5 rate was a part of wearing the green jersey. Our 12.5% um, corporate profit tax uh, has been a huge success. It's a really important part of our industrial policy and has uh, almost crossed, not entire cross-party support, but strong cross-party support uh, in this House. Uh, Over a quarter of a million people uh, work in multinational companies in Ireland. We want to keep those jobs uh, and the 100,000 or so indirect jobs that arise from those jobs. It was a touchy exchange. certainly won't be patronised by you or anybody else in Fine Gael in terms of what represents the national interest. The Labour Party has always put the national um, interest first and history... Uh, will uh, show that. Um, The truth is that uh, we could have boxed off 
the 15% condition very early on. And it was you, uh, Tonister, and your government that created the kind of uncertainty uh, that has dominated uh, this process over the last few months. I've asked you a very simple question. You know, how much extra or less is it forecast that Ireland will raise in corporation tax uh, if we adopt the 15% rate for multinationals? Are you telling me seriously that this hasn't been worked out? That is an interesting question. The Tánaiste told the Dalit wasn't one he could answer definitively and that government was working off estimates. The most recent projections that I've seen, and they may have changed, um, the most recent projections I, I've seen is our estimate, and it is only an estimate, um, that we would lose in the region of £2 billion a year uh, in revenue. Um, but nobody knows that for sure. Uh, nobody predicted that after the last range of changes we made that corporation profit tax um, receipts would soar. Um, there are so many variables. Uh, it's very difficult to know. Tanisha Leo Bradker finishing that report for us from Rebecca Daly. Michael Reed on LMFM. Brexit never fails uh, to amaze. It certainly never fails uh, to disappoint or instill fear in people because this week it seemed as though a lot of the problems were going to be overcome and an announcement uh, from Brussels was uh, to address what they called the substantive and far-reaching problems with uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol and offer concessions in terms of how border controls and customs checks are being implemented. But since then, a problem has arisen with the European Court of Justice. The Brexit minister in the UK, David Frost, says uh, that the role of uh, the European Court of Justice has created a deep imbalance in the way the protocol operates and without changes, the protocol will never have the support it needs to survive. As you know, that started a Twitter war over the weekend. The Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, tweeting at half eleven on a Saturday night. It seems uh, that the UK uh, was trying to create a new red line barrier uh, and why he wondered if this was uh, to further a breakdown in relations between the UK and indeed the EU. Let's uh, speak to DUP MLA Jim Wells. A very good morning to you, Jim Wells, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Is it a a new red line, as the Irish Minister suggests, uh, this uh, position that the UK seems to be taking now on the European Court of Justice? I hope it is, Michael. Um, We have always argued that there are so many aspects of the protocol that are unacceptable. It's not just about sausages. It's not even about uh, roses or trees. It's about the fundamental relationship that we have as part of the United Kingdom. And uh, there can't be a situation where the Supreme Court for one part of the United Kingdom sits in London and for the fourth part of the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, that sits in in Luxembourg. Totally unacceptable that the decision makers sitting, uh, 27 judges sitting in a court in Luxembourg representing the EU can dictate what we in Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom and not part of the EU uh, should do. I mean, it's just not acceptable. So I'm glad that... Dictate uh, what you do or oversee what you do? No, dictates because the laws, the, the, the European Court of Justice sets the laws which govern trade within the EU and as we're still stuck, unfortunately, in the single market, it can it can adjudicate on various decisions and enforce them within this part of the United Kingdom, but only this part of the United Kingdom, not England, Scotland and Wales. Based on the agreement that you have with Europe. No, not we. The we is not the DUP or unionism. The we is Boris Johnston and the Conservative government with the EU. And this, that was signed over our heads in mm. October 2019. And what I can say is it's, it's rapidly become apparent that they were sold a pup 
but they really that's uh, they bought a pop or or they 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 sold a pop themselves or whatever way you want to put that but at the end of the day it seems as though Brussels has come up with a a solution that would address the sausages and the roses and uh, the cancer medication and all of the things that have been of concern to you uh, and that what the role of the court would be is as was agreed under that pop whoever sold it and whoever bought it uh, that the ECJ would oversee how this plays out on the ground. Yes, and that's totally unacceptable. Would Donegal accept the, Europe, you know, the British Court of Justice, the Supreme Court, implementing decisions in that part of the Irish Republic? Of course it wouldn't, because that would be a fundamental breach of its sovereignty as a part of the Republic of Ireland. Similarly, we can't have judges. We have no control over because remember, we're no longer sitting in the European uh, uh, Parliament. We no longer appoint commissioners. Do, do, do we seriously expect that this part of the United Kingdom should have anything enforced upon it by a court which it has no control over whatsoever. Utterly unacceptable. I'm just glad, Lord Frost, the penny's beginning to drop. What would be next, though? I mean, it seems as though it's one thing after another. You come up with one problem, uh, meaning the British government comes up with one problem, uh, and as soon as that's solved, there's another one. Yes, because I think what our, our government is gradually finding out that there's none of the protocol acceptable to the Constitution of the United Kingdom about unionism. It simply has to go. It has to go, but with controls put in to stop goods coming into Northern Ireland, moving to the rest of the European Union, to the rest of the Union, sorry, to the European Union, the party that's there, wasn't it? No, in other words, I mean, the, the, the point is that, yes, we accept the point that, that they don't want goods coming into Northern Ireland. The 6% that does go in and go to the Irish Republic, that can be stopped. And once that fundamental issue has been addressed, there's no need for a protocol, there's no need for controls of the European Court of Justice. And, you know, it's all unacceptable to the people of Northern Ireland, as it would be to the people of the Irish Republic. Yeah, so where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us that we're in a very difficult negotiating position. But remember, the UK government, our government, can, of course, Mm. invoke Article 16 and bring the whole thing crashing down. Uh, and I think we need to do that, and they need to address the 6% of goods that do go into the Irish Republic. Mm. And I think those should be phased out over a three-year basis, with companies been given proper warning. Instead mm. of bringing goods from Stranraer to Larne, they bring them from Dunleary to Do you to not Lally. think this is ridiculous, though? Uh, I mean, in a difficult negotiating position, uh, how long after the agreement was reached, after three years of negotiation? Yes, and they, they reached uh, an agreement that was fundamentally flawed. Uh, you know, I mean, and now but that's an agreement. I mean, that's at the end of the nego- yeah, but, negotiations but are over. <laughs> Do you know yeah, what I mean? It is I, ridiculous, isn't it? And the agreement, as when the Irish Republic stayed in the Commonwealth after partition, they decided after a few years it wasn't a good idea and they withdrew. So, you know, it, agreements can be changed uh, by the will of either party. And there is the mechanism within this agreement to, to, to revoke it. And that may be what's going to have to happen here. But at the end of the day, this is a terrible price we are paying for the 6% of goods that come into Northern Ireland that go to the Irish Republic. That can be changed. And I keep saying this to you, Mike. This has nothing to do with about sausages or trees or roses. This is about causing the maximum amount of pain for the UK for having the temerity to leave the European Union. That's what's going on here. It's a punishment bidding we're getting. It's nothing to do with protecting goods and services crossing the border. Mm. Uh, or is it about British pride? Well, yes, obviously, we're the fifth largest economy in the yeah. world. We have a right to make our own decisions. And it is wrong that any part of the UK should be being dictated to by Brussels. 
We, it's a clean cut we want here, well, and Northern yeah. Ireland can't be left behind as a third party, as it were, in this agreement. Yeah, well, I mean, I think from a European perspective, which would include the Republic of Ireland to a, a large degree, this is an external issue. Uh, issue. It's a, an internal issue within the United Kingdom, where London is dictating to Northern Ireland, and you're offended that they're saying that you're less British than they are. Well, under the the, the the uh, agreement that was signed, we are. Yeah. <laughs> as simple as that. And that simply but, has but, to but, stop. Yeah, but that's the problem that you have with London. Yes. And, and there's London. 27 countries getting pretty fed up, I imagine, at this stage. Yes, but the, the penny's beginning to drop with London. That's the mm. good news. That, uh, I mean, Jeffrey Donaldson and his negotiating team have been able to argue very successfully that this situation can't continue. And what I do find encouraging is Lord Frost who's the chief negotiator for the UK, that the penny's dropping with him, that this simply can't go on. And so I'm encouraged by that. There, have been, there has been movement, and this can be solved. And by the way, this can be solved in a way that really has no implications whatsoever for the border, none whatsoever. Mm. And that, that, I mean, there is a practical Well, that needs another it. renegotiation, uh, as we've uh, discussed and so, previously. And so yeah, be it, yeah, Mike, yeah, and if it yeah, takes yeah. another year yeah. to do it, so be it, but we have to get out of the protocol. Okay, we leave there for the moment, Jim. Thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme. That's uh, DUP MLA for South Down, Jim Wells. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, many of you have uh, told us what uh, you think of e-scooters in uh, the past, and uh, I think uh, the short version of that is that you're not particularly keen of them. Here's a, a different perspective, because Spin says that they're very good for people's mental health, they keep people connected, and indeed they're a way of saving the planet. Let's speak to Peter Riddale, who's a Community Partnerships Manager for SPIN. And a very good morning to you, Peter, and uh, thanks uh, for say, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I, I guess people might say, you would say that, wouldn't you, given that you're a subsidiary of uh, the Ford Motor Company? Mona Michael, yes, uh, I suppose people might say that. Um, but what, what we found is we were really interested to find out a little bit more about the mental health and the mental well-being of both spin employees and our riders during the pandemic. Um, so this year is, is World Mental Health Day approach. We really want to understand how access to our shared e-scooter rental schemes were affecting the riders' mental health. We have anecdotal evidence and, you know, conversations we'd had that suggested there was a positive benefit. So we thought, you know, we'd we'd carry out an actual survey and, mm. and ask them, ask them a variety of questions. And, you know, the headline take for us away from that was that 70% of the respondents said that riding the knee scooter through one of the highest schemes in the UK actually helped improve their mental health. So it kind of validated what we thought was going on. And it, it was really great to find that, you know, Something that we knew was great with getting to work or running an errand was actually something that was improving people's well-being as well, which you know really important given the the last eighteen months that we've all been through. Okay, why is that? Uh, what does it do for them? I think it gives a, a sense of, of freedom, but it's also it's an enjoyable mode of transport. And I think you know sometimes if we we've all commuted to work maybe by car or other forms of transport, and you know it could be something that you didn't particularly look forward to was just something we had to do. Whereas I think actually using an e-scooter is fun. I think that's a really important point that it's, it's given 
87% of the people who responded, for example, said it gave them an increased sense of freedom. Mm. And 80, 85% said it made them feel relaxed. And I think these are all really important things to get us to our destination, less stressed and help with our overall mental well-being. And I think it's, there's a, you know, I'm from a cycling background, which is as spin as a company started that way as well. And it was quite well recognised within the cycling industry as, as everybody pushed for more people to cycle as well, that there's an endorphin release, saying what people would call the happiness hormone, I suppose, that that cycling gave people that, that, that sense of happiness. Mm. And I think these scooters, we can see there's a very similar reaction. You're out in the fresh air. The movement and way of using an e-scooter is actually quite a fun way to travel. Mm. And I think it's very important that people see e-scooters as something that they would enjoy to use because we we can go for a message of how it's a sustainable mode of transport, which is very, very important. However, to encourage people to maybe switch to that mode of transport, I think they really need to enjoy doing it first. It's something, you you know, it's very difficult to get somebody to do something, just giving them a very strong message about the environment or maybe there's a cost saving. If they enjoy that mode of transport as well, then I think Mm. we can get towards some real behavioural change. Fair enough. I can understand that and appreciate it to a large degree, that idea of gliding along with the wind in your hair and not a care in the world and all of that sort of thing, provided uh, the bikes can be or the scooters can be facilitated. Uh, it seems as though uh, there isn't the room for them to a, a large degree, apart from the safety concerns and the nuisance elements uh, that go alongside them. I think there are definitely safety concerns. Um, I think whenever the, the scooters are launched in a new market, people are apprehensive. It's a new mode of transport. Um, but what I would say is Spain and, and other operators, mm. you know, we have a lot of experience across for Spain, for across 80 markets across the US and in Europe. And the concerns were the same everywhere where the, where the higher schemes first launch. Mm. But what people, I think, will become aware of is the, the higher schemes are very well regulated. The quality of the scooters is very high. The mm-hmm. safety yeah. record is very good. And we can do things like reduce the speed of the scooters. So the uh, higher scheme currently in the UK was Spin. Our scooters are reduced to 12 and a half miles an hour. So... Right. It's mm. not. It's not like some of the particularly. You can see some privately owned scooters can mm. go much faster than that. Yeah. The highest. Oh well, they can go a lot faster. Miles. They can do up to about yeah. hundred kilometres, can't they? I think typically the scooters that you'd see in this country would be doing around thirty, or they'd have the capacity to do about thirty kilometres. I think that's probably yeah. right. Yes. So yeah. you know, we've we've got a significantly. But, but where do they drive when they're driving safely? Uh, I mean, is it not like bicycles? Uh, ideally, at least uh, that you'd have bicycle lanes for bicycles. Should you not have scooter lanes for scooters? I think the the ideal location for a scooter is actually within that in that safe infrastructure that bicycles prefer to use. And I think as as, as systems develop and schemes become more mature, I think. Bicycle infrastructure might be more designated as micro-mobility infrastructure where e-scooters and bicycles and e-bikes are side-by-side, separated from maybe the, the more dangerous modes of motorised transport next to them. E-scooters do work well on uh, quieter roads. You know, mm. the 30-mile-an-hour type speed limit road is, is a very 
reasonable place for an e-scooter to be. Yeah. Where we don't want them is on pavements in conflict with yeah. pedestrians. Well, that's, that's, a, that's, that's what people get very annoyed about, and understandably so. And the speed uh, limit is, uh, I think, an important issue. If you can only do 12.5 kilometres, uh, there's less damage if you come off. Uh, because we quite often see people flying on these scooters, and you'd be very worried about them, especially going around corners at high speed uh, and uh, no helmet on and that sort of thing. Exactly. I mean, they are a mo- they are a motor vehicle. Um, you know, they're, they're a significant piece of kit. They should be mm. ridden respectfully as a result. So we put a big approach into, it's, it's kind of a dual approach. We have the safety of the e-scooter itself. So, you know, we can reduce speed. We can create go-slow zones. So as a rider goes into what may be, might be a busier area and we've mm. worked with the local authority in that area, the scooter will automatically slow, slow down. It will override maybe the rider's intention to carry on at the maximum speed and bring it down to a more reasonable slow speed, mm-hmm. slower than set by ourselves and the authorities. And I think that that really helps people understand how they should ride the scooter yeah. They're very popular now. They're very popular now, Peter, uh, and uh, we see them every day, many of them, but technically, at least, uh, they're illegal, aren't they? In Ireland, they're still illegal, yes. It's mad, because because they're motor-propelled vehicles, they're MPVs, and they need insurance and tax, uh, as any other uh, motorised vehicle does, Uh, but we see them all the time, and this is where the problem is, they're driving very fast, uh, people with no helmets, uh, they're going the wrong way up one-way streets, uh, they're driving on footpaths, they're coming, they're, they're silent uh, as well, which uh, is a, of concern to people, uh, whether they're on the road or on the footpath, because uh, they come out of nowhere and uh, take people by surprise and so on. Yeah. Uh, now, you're here, obviously, uh, as a vested interest, promoting e-scooters ahead of legislation. What would you hope will uh, be the law when these things are legalised, if they are to be legalised in this country? If the legislation changes in, in Ireland, I think we, we, would like to, we would like to see that, obviously, to, to bring in a higher scheme. But I think what I'd like to see is that higher schemes can be shown as to how to deliver the gold standard, if you like, as to how, how the scooter should operate safely and help influence the private, the private scooter usage as well. So I think speed control for certain, and I think things like training of riders. So we offer very comprehensive safety training for the riders, which is free. I think that would be very, very useful and valuable thing to be given to private e-scooter users as well. Um, I think, again, where the scooters can go, very strict um, around them not being on pavements, on the footpaths. I think, you know, that wherever there's conflicts with pedestrians and vulnerable pedestrians, that's where the most issues are going to arise. So keeping them to the infrastructure that's best designed for them and for that to be in the legislation so everybody knows from the off, this is where you ride them, this is where you can't ride them, this is how you ride them, this is how you shouldn't ride them. And what's worked well in other countries, say in the UK, where the, they are currently e-scooters in general in the UK are illegal as well, other than in the um, government-sanctioned trials for the rental scooters, which were one of the operators, what that enables um, the legislation over there to do is to see what works well. What, what, is, what, what works well? How, how do we develop a standard for training, a standard for behaviour? And we'd love to work with uh, the government in Ireland to, to create that national standard in Ireland as well. Very and nice. I think that, that way you get a safe mode of transport, like an exemplar mode of transport, that if 
the private schools are also legalised in Ireland. It's a standard that everyone's trained for. Okay, Peter, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you, though, for joining us on the programme today. That's Peter Riddale, Community Partnerships Manager with SPIN. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. I'm sure you're aware at uh, this stage uh, that the board of the HSE met in uh, July of uh, this year and it decided it's going to close uh, the emergency department at Her Lady's Hospital in Navan. The emergency department in Navan is uh, to be replaced by a 24 seven medical assessment unit and because of uh, that reconfiguration the HSE says the hospital will no longer require an intensive care unit. Let's uh, speak uh, to Morris Sheehan who's INMO Industrial Relations Officer. Good morning to you Morris. Thanks indeed for joining us and indeed we might talk about the impact that decision will have if patients are to be sent to Blanchardstown as a result but you're in Blanchardstown and uh, members of the Irish Nurses and Midwives organisation in Connolly Hospital are to protest this afternoon. Tell us what that protest is about. Well, that protest is about the staffing pressures in the hospital. It's been a particularly difficult summer for staff there. There was significant uh, staff absenteeism for a variety of reasons. Uh, up to 70 whole time equivalents uh, were, not that, were not at work and that place great pressure on the staff who were and uh, we met the staff through August and September heard their stories Uh, like a lot of staff in the health service uh, they're physically and emotionally exhausted because of the last 18 months beyond capacity in other words yeah yeah and when we look at capacity here we must talk about the capacity of the individual nurse The, the nurse that was in Conley Hospitals in January 2020 is not the same person as the nurse here today. They've gone through a difficult time and what they're concerned is is that uh, they're continuously being redeployed in the hospital, having to take care of greater amounts of patients. So a lot of them are stretched beyond the limits. It of, it of course affects different nurses differently. But the nurses who we met um, throughout the summer, they said enough is enough and they wanted us to put two things to the employer. Either they scale back services if there isn't sufficient staff or alternatively they recruit extra staff to fill in the gaps. Now, uh, since in the last few days, uh, since we announced the protest, I can tell you that from the end of September onto, uh, through to the first quarter of 2022, the hospital is hoping that they will recruit 70 extra nurses. Right, that's substantial, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's mm. quite substantial because the workforce there is about, there's about 600 nurses there, about 550 whole-time equivalents. But it's against a backdrop where it's been very difficult to recruit nurses for a variety of reasons. Right. Uh, And uh, as you say, you put it uh, to the HSE that they either scale back services or increase staffing levels. uh, And uh, I take it that's uh, because uh, of uh, concern about the standard of care that has been afforded to people. Yes. Yeah. The the standard of care, if if the, if the, the, the staffing level is not appropriate 
it of course impacts on patient care. And that's well documented that, you know, if there isn't sufficient staffing levels, it'll impact in various ways, greater risk for the patients. And some, for example, with elderly patients, greater risk of falls if they're not being taken care of by the right amount of nurses and so, and so on. If they're not turned, if the patient isn't turned, maybe they'll get a greater risk of bed sores uh, and so on. So um, we, we've done a lot of listening. Yeah. We've done a lot of talking. We don't feel that the management are really hearing what the staff are saying. They're, oh. they're, they're, at one level, they're conscious, but I don't think they're yet fully conscious. And I'm talking about that as, as an institution, right? Mm. And I'm not talking about individual members of management, but they're not really conscious of the impact it's having on individuals. We did a survey in the union, which was only publicised last week, and it was uh, about, I think, 1,900 people responded to our survey. And a lot of people are very Mm. stressed, a lot of people thinking of leaving the profession and so on and so forth. Right. And I, I don't mean to undermine that by asking you, but I have to ask you because I'm not sure I, I understand why you feel management aren't listening if they're, ab- if they're about to recruit 70 nurses. Oh, well, you, you, oh yes. They're, well, when I say that, they're recruiting the 70 nurses, right? But the nurses, some of the nurses will not come on stream. They're not definite starters even. Right. Okay? It takes a long process from the point of uh, actually placing an advertisement and then doing all the vetting, etc., and then putting the nurse in place on okay. the ward, fully equipped. So until that happens, ideally, you'd be suggesting that services would be scaled back. Are you concerned that they might be ramped up by what's happening in Navin? Well, I don't. I don't think they're going to. I don't think there's any question of them being wrapped up in in Connolly Hospital. I'm only talking about Connolly at the moment, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And even yesterday. Uh, Paul Reid was uh, on on radio and he did talk about buying capacity in the private sector Mm -hmm. to meet the demand that's there at the moment. Okay, but uh, I suppose Connolly uh, would be the first port of call for people uh, if um, Navin wasn't available to them. uh, And that's... uh, the link that I'm making between the two because of the geography of it, if you like. Ah, yes, yeah, yeah, I I understand that. Now, what I would say is that the discussions in Navin are at a very early stage. uh, And while the HSE have said they've made a decision, there is actually no timeline in respect of those changes and reconfigurations in in Navin. And there's a lot of discussions to take place, not only with our union, uh, but also with other unions and also obviously other stakeholders in the community. Mm. So there's no timeline. And th- the demonstration today is very much about what's happening now. Because, yes, in Connolly, the management has said we are going to recruit. And, you know, at national and local level, there's recruitment exercises taking place. But the the nurses have not come on stream. And meanwhile, uh, the the nurses on the wards are under greater pressure. Uh, You've got less staffing coping with an increased workload because at the moment, the hospital is uh, back to its normal services. Mm. So, so that's where we're, where we're concerned. It's just not balancing out. And we're concerned because staff have left and they've, they've just walked off the job, some nurses, right? Yeah. Uh, to, to, 
some of course leave and they go maybe to another nursing job but some have left to just go home Mm. and what they are saying is that the accumulated stress of one, two, three four waves of COVID that, 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 that's really hit them at a personal level they, they talk about an anxiety and worry about you know what they're bringing home to their families every day and of course lots of them contracted COVID during the course of the pandemic of course yeah, yeah and there's uh, been some terrible stories uh, about uh, people working in the health service uh, who've contracted COVID not all are as lucky uh, as others uh, but as far as you're concerned despite the commitment to cr- recruit 70 nurses this is an ongoing dispute because of uh, the situation currently on the ground yeah and we're not uh, just to, to clarify Michael we're not even calling it a dispute we want to highlight the issue right I, and I don't want to be semantic about it we want to highlight the the issue in order that the problems now are addressed and we really only see them being addressed by scaling back some services as happened at the start of the pandemic when each hospital got an instruction to look at its least essential services and scale back. The difficulty is that for the nurses, even though we're hopefully through the worst phases of COVID, Mm. the workload remains the same and as intense. Okay. We leave it there. Thank you indeed, uh, Morris, for joining us uh, this morning. Morris Sheehan, INMO Industrial Relations Officer, brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out on us once again. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 